0: Welcome to the South Fellowship podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? My name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're really glad that you are. It's great to have you here. Uh, and uh, yeah, what a beautiful day to join us on. I'm gonna start us with a question. Um, I'm gonna start us with this question. Do you have a weakness? Do you have a weakness? I'm not talking like a vice or like a, a sin issue or something like that, to use some language we might use in churches. I'm just talking about something that if somebody offers it up to you, you're going to find it really hard to say no. Um, like, so every now and again, every maybe once a year, uh, my beautiful wife will come to me and say, I think we should go on a diet, mainly like for health reasons, just to you know, make sure everything's working properly. And, and so we usually do this one called Whole30, uh, which requires giving up a load of things that I love uh, and me being fairly resentful for 30 days of just of, of supposed wholeness. I don't feel very whole, I feel empty, but we do it. Uh, and, and here's the truth, I can look brownies in the face And be like, no, not interesting. Candy, not a problem. Uh, But bread, bread is going to be really hard for me to give up. Some good friends of ours came to us and said, you know, you've you've got no gallbladder anymore. We want to make sure you're on a diet that's going to keep you healthy for a long time. And I'm like, you're going to tell me to give up bread, aren't aren't you? And and you can stop right there. I'm I'm not going down that route. I I love bread. And then when I moved to America, uh, someone presented me with this thing. Now, now, when I came, I was deeply suspicious of, uh, of you people that I've come to love very much. Um, I, I, was, I, I didn't think that you understood um, beer or chocolate or um, it's fun some, some other stuff as well, but, but bread as well. And then I got this, and I, it confirmed some of my suspicions, I'm afraid. I, I even found a list of ingredients. Um, that's a lot of ingredients for bread. Let me just say that. Generally, bread comes with five ingredients, and... Uh, and Azodiacarbonamide is not traditionally one of the ingredients of bread, nor is high fructose corn syrup and all of these other things. So a few life lessons for you if if this is still your bread of choice. Uh, If you can leave bread in a drawer for two months and it looks the same when it comes out, that's not bread. If you can squash it into a ball and it springs back to the shape that it was before you squashed it, also not bread. so I just thought it was worth getting that out of the way as we begin our discourse on bread. So, so just to make sure we were all on the same page, I had someone make this. Our good friend Eric Schmidt made this for me, uh, and and I'll be honest. Someone on staff, I think it was Aaron, said to me, "So, so is this like an illustration or something?" I was like, "Not really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess it could be." Uh, really, what it is is I'm on hole thirty and I really wanna eat bread. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just as part of the sermon, this just felt like an opportunity for, for me to... Oh, look at that, it's so good. For me to have bread. And if you're watching at home, you can go get some bread, but these guys in here, they're stuck with me. And, uh, oh, man. And Eric Schmidt is working some kind of witchcraft with this stuff, this stuff is incredible. And so, Here's the deal, if you listen patiently and well, I will share some with you at the end of the service. I'll be walking around. I can't do that to you anymore. Oh, that's so good. Let me take a drink of water and then we'll get started for real. We get to talk about bread and in Jesus' day, the conversation about bread was a very real one. There was a discourse on bread, who had it, who didn't have it. In a society that looks almost nothing like ours today, he spoke mainly to a group of people who survived on wages from day to day. If you didn't work today, the chances are you didn't have bread tomorrow, and that got bad really, really quickly. Jesus talked regularly and often about bread. Before we go too far down this train, though, let me just make sure everyone's up to speed. This whole prayer begins with some disciples of Jesus coming to him and saying, Lord, teach us to pray. To phrase that another way, you may say they asked a question something like this or made a statement something like this. Show us something that works. Show us something that works. They were not irreligious people. They had grown up with religion. But in Jesus, they see a way of being, a way of connecting with God that seems and appears to be different. So their plea to him is, show us what you're doing. How is this working for you? We want to learn from you. And in response, He gives them 57 words after a preamble that teaches them a couple of principles. And they are these, the ones that you just read. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there is one opening that really changes everything. The idea that you and I can come to God and call Him Father, that these 12 men could come and call Him Father was groundbreaking, Enough, but then three clauses about God, three things that speak about God and His name being holy, three things that talk about God and His kingdom that might come and His will that might be done on earth like it is in heaven. And then these three petitions that we're slowly getting to. And Yvonne walked us last week through Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is Matthew writing, an early follower of Jesus. A slightly later follower of Jesus called Luke will phrase it just a little bit differently. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. He leaves out the heaven part, but it seems that Matthew wants to remind us that there is a place on earth where God's will is done. It may not be this place right now, but it will be one day. He wants to say that in all the universe that you see, there may be only just earth where his will isn't done. Maybe, just maybe, everywhere else, else it is done. And maybe that can change one day. And maybe you and I get to participate in that on some level. These were people that had a very definite view of tiers in the world. So I picked the Shire because it exemplified to me the most about what is wholesome on earth. But there was the earth tier, and then they were very aware of the tier above the earth tier. Somewhere there was earth and then there was heavens. And, and later on, as the language started to develop, as the thoughts started to develop, you slowly start to get this other place that you don't want to go. But for most, the most part, the language was fixed on there is earth and then there is heaven. And what would it look like if heaven stepped down to earth? What would it look like if the principles that were at work in God's kingdom there started to work here as well? This, in the first century, was rebellious language. The Roman Empire covered maybe half the known globe at this point, and you couldn't pass it off and say, well, you know, we're really talking about a spiritual kingdom. They didn't want any other kind of kingdom. You couldn't say it's going to be sometime in the future. Uh, They believed their kingdom. The Roman Empire was going to last forever. It was a problem, however, you phrased it. When Jesus talks about a kingdom coming, he's using what you might call eschatological language. Now, I know some of you are only one coffee into the day, so throwing words like eschatological at you is a little unfair, but I just mean like to do with the end, to do with some kind of change, some kind of way God might work in the world. And so Yvonne walked us through the fact that God invites us to participate and partner with him in this world, you are offered a commission, and, and you get to participate. You get to say yes," which is good news indeed. And then, after all of this, after all of this spatial language, this big story, he then says, "Oh, and give us today our daily bread." It's space, it's up there, it's eschatological. It's stepping down into this world. And then it's, "Give us today our daily bread. It's bread. It's just bread. Give us today." daily bread. What did Jesus mean? What did Jesus mean? And, and maybe what does Jesus mean or what did Jesus mean by bread? The language that he uses is actually maybe a little confusing, certainly interesting. He uses this phrase, apousian arton, so aton is bread, and then apousian appears nowhere else in Greek literature of this age, it's just not there. It's just missing. This is the, the one time it gets used. You might say it's the right amount of bread for tomorrow. If you're praying at night, it's like, God, provide for the next day. Provide for the, the near range, the, the sort of like the just about to arrive time frame. What does Jesus mean when he says, Give us today our daily bread. What does he mean by bread? So given that he talked about a kingdom coming down, maybe it's that word I used already, that confusing long word, eschatological. Is that what he's talking about? Is he saying, God, provide for this kingdom to come, provide for this thing that we can't see yet. Give us the resources to make the kingdom happen. You could make an argument that the translation could be the bread for what's next, the bread for the coming thing. But there's a problem with that reading because Jesus, for the most part, when he says bread, he means bread. Jesus dealt very particularly with people's physical needs. He did it often and regularly. He cared about what was practical. So I would suggest that the large part of this language about bread is about the physical. What we're seeing here is this. It's a petition for provision. It's a petition for provision. And in a community like the one Jesus was operating in, that was important language. Maybe difficult for people like you and I to understand, the average American spends about 6% of their salary on sustenance, on bread, on food. The average Nigerian spends 60% of their salary on bread or on food. And 100 years ago, the average person in the West spent around 90% of their salary on bread or on food. Our dialogue and narratives around bread have fluctuated and changed as the years have gone on. But to this community, as I began with, the language about bread and the daily need for it was, was very relevant and very important. Some people had lots and lots of people had None. So when Jesus says daily bread, one, it spoke very much into like a deep need that they were aware of. What if God doesn't provide for tomorrow? But it also probably tapped into at least one story that taught them a lot about how God might provide bread for them. So if you have a text that you're following along in, you can go back to Exodus chapter 16 and we're gonna pick up in verse one. The whole Israelite community is how it begins. This Israelite community, it speaks of, have been in slavery in a land called Egypt, the superpower of the day, for about 400 years. Uh, Life has been rough, they have cried out to God, a deliverer, deliverer has come, called Moses, and he has miraculously, through God's favor, brought them out of Egypt into this desert which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They have come from a city where there are some resources and now they are in a desert where there are no resources. What do they not have in deserts? They don't have water and they don't have bread. And so this community finds itself free, but now starving, hungry. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. They specifically say, we wish we were dead. It would have been better this way. Why didn't he just kill us then? There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. And maybe we questioned, are you remembering the story accurately? The slavery that you described was not one of sitting around big pots of meat, it was not one of abundance, and yet to this starving people, suddenly it's like, oh, if we could go back, remember the old days? They were so good, we got to eat all that we wanted, life was great, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. You've brought us out to starve the entire assembly to death. The people are grumbling, the people are unhappy. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. Gather enough for that day. I will rain bread. It won't be something you work for. It will come gratis, free of charge on the house. It will lie on the ground. And your job is simply to go and collect it, but just gather enough for that day. And in the morning." Some gathered little, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. In this story, God provides for his people, and he provides the right amount. In this story, they don't have resources, they don't have access to resources, and God provides. Anyway, and you see this sort of miraculous provision appear in some of the other language in this Old Testament. The Lord is my shepherd, famous Psalm 23. I shall not want. This is a group of people that believed, that had stories about the way that God had provided. I I shall not want might not even be a a particularly good translation of it. You, You might say, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. To the people listening to Jesus, there were real stories of how God had provided. And this possibility was sketched out that he would provide everything that they need. And, and I would suggest that Jesus says the same to you and I, and yet here's the problem. How many of you would say that feels true? or true in your life perhaps is a better way of saying that. Now in a community like South, a ton of economic diversity, people in all sorts of different situations. I might say it may not be true because you actually come and you sit here and you say, I have a real need that feels like it isn't being met. I don't have enough. It may not be bread, but it's something. I feel like in the world system that I'm sitting in, I don't have enough to survive and thrive. So that may be one way of looking at having a want or a need. But on the other hand, couldn't it be that just we live in a society that constantly plays with us, so we want more and more and more, and even when we have enough, maybe we're not actually very satisfied either. Maybe there's a different sort of connotation to this. Maybe you've noticed that you might buy a car, and for a while it's good, but you spring back to normal very quickly. And, and then you kind of want or need, depending on your language, something else. You, you buy a house and it's nice, but you go to a neighbor's house and, and well, that one's nicer. You get stuff and, and it's slowly, the, the satisfaction of it disappears. This is a, a piece of a verse from the, the band Weezer. There's always a number that'll make you feel bad about yourself. You try to measure up, try to measure up to somebody else. Numbers are out to get you. There is a way maybe that we compare to each other that makes our satisfaction disappear and, and gives us this sense of there are lots of things that I want and or need, even if that maybe isn't particularly true. I have a friend that used to do financial advice and he told me all of the metrics that he had for how he, what he drove in terms of a car and, and what kind of watch he wore. And he explained to me once, he said, I'm supposed to make people money. So if I drive a Honda Their suspicion is that I'm not making very much money. Now, no problem with Hondas. If you drive a Honda, good for you, they're great cars. But he said, "I I can't drive a Honda. They'll say I'm not good at my job. But he said, if I drive a Ferrari, Then they'll think I'm, well, maybe not too good at my job, but I'm certainly taking too much of their share of the profits. And he said, there's this whole system for what you drive and what you don't drive, what watch you wear and what watch you don't wear. He recognized that there was this numbers game in play. And and the story with lots of guys is they meet people and say, what do you do for a living? And sometimes it's just, we can't think of anything else to say, but sometimes it's it's a way of assessing. It's a way of figuring out, where do I fit in the order? I fit above you or below you. We live in a world that's constantly telling us to to check how you measure up with everybody else. For those of you that are on Instagram, there's a fascinating Instagram site called Preachers and Sneakers. You can look and follow your favourite celebrity preacher and they'll take pictures and they'll go work out how much the, the clothes that they're wearing cost in the fair market. So we see here a guy who I don't know. That's why I picked him. I didn't think it was fair to pick someone I knew. Uh, but it says that he bought these shoes that maybe were about $1,000 normally. And, and there he goes. And, and I show you this so you can keep me in check, right? If I ever end up on here, you can come and, and slap me or something like that. I think. I'm fairly safe today. I don't don't think think there's going to be a problem. But but there's this whole culture here, right? Even the New York Times asked the question, should pastors wear $5,000 sneakers? Even for those of us that would claim to be following Jesus in a particular way, there is a temptation to think about what the outside looks like and how you can measure up to people around you. Some wise person once said that comparison is the enemy of contentment. The moment that you choose to compare to other people, the moment your contentment drops. And maybe the way that you pray this prayer Jesus gave us changes just a little bit. What do you mean by give us our daily bread? It's so easy to move from I I need sustenance to I need a bunch of other stuff. It's so easy to make that movement. And the truth is your newsfeed, whatever you look at, it probably alters your felt need. Your newsfeed probably alters your felt need. Maybe our language in prayer changes. Maybe this is why the incredibly wise people that put together the Proverbs said this, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. They go on to unpack this for two reasons. Otherwise, reason one, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Affluence, wealth. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. In the first century, the second one was a concern for most of Jesus' listeners. What happens when I really don't have enough? What happens when the bread is gone? Do I then steal? Do I then kill? Do I dishonor my God just to get enough? to live, and so the prayer there is, God, please don't give me that little that I fall temptation to that. The first one maybe is more of a concern for us who don't lack bread for the most part. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Jesus was constantly saying to his earliest followers, to the people, the crowds that were listening to him, just be aware that wealth does funny things to people. This is Matthew 13, and I spent just some of the week just thinking about this and the connection to what Jesus says to us to pray. As for the seed that was spread among the thorny plants, he's given them this parable about three different kinds of ground that, cinder, cinder, that the seed has landed in, as well as the good ground. And this thorny ground, he said, is like those who hear the word, but the worries of this life, and get this, the false appeal of wealth choke the word and it bears no fruit. Now, I'm lucky enough to get to know some of you, some of you more than others, but but the truth is I know that there's some of you that handle wealth incredibly well. You use it to resource people. You use it to give. You use it to help make the world around you a better place, and I'm so glad that there's people that God can trust with that. I have this deep suspicion that I may not be one of them Maybe that's why, Like, maybe it's just some kind of principle God has put in the universe. If I buy a stock, it will go down. It's like almost a guarantee. So I should do this advice thing where I'll tell you what I'm doing, you do the opposite, and you guys will have more money and and life will probably be good. I do not believe myself to be someone that suits wealth. And yet the plea of this proverb seems to be God, know me better than I know myself. Know what I need know what I'm likely to want, and find the right place for me somewhere in that spectrum. Somewhere I don't want to be too poor because I might end up stealing. I might end up taking things that aren't mine. Somewhere I might be too rich and, and it's just possible that in that richness I will forget you and forget that really everything that I have is dependent on you. I think we can buy into this lie that we actually create our own wealth and we may participate in that but the truth is all of it comes from somewhere else and this proverb says help me to land in the middle. Maybe when Jesus says God give us today our daily bread, What he's saying is, know me better than I know myself. Land me in the right spot for me. The hard part is that that spot may be very different for you than it is for me. It may be different for you than it is for somebody else. And if comparison is your goal, it may just not add up. And yet this decision to trust God and say, God, land me in the right spot for me seems to be the thing that Jesus has for us. And so I have another question, assuming all of that is true. If this is mainly about trusting God to land us in the right spot, if this is about saying, God, don't give me too much wealth, don't give me too little wealth, well, that's about surrender. That's about giving it up and saying, God, you make a decision. That seems healthy. That seems like a good thing to take away from today. But is there an action? Is there something we're supposed to actively do? Surrender is almost like a a passive doing. It's, It's giving it up to God, but... But is there an action? Jesus has talked about the kingdom coming. He's talked about participation. And so is there a sort of some kind of connection to the kingdom is coming? You get to play a part in it. I get to play a part in it. And is there something we're supposed to do with our bread? And here's a clue here. What does this mean for people who don't have a need for bread? Give us today is the language that he chooses Maybe the emphasis isn't just on daily and bread, but maybe it's on us. Somewhere, this language is plural for a reason. It's plural for a reason. It matters that it's about us. This isn't about your bread. This isn't about my bread. This is about our bread. This has a plurality to it that seems to matter. I love what our food bank does. We have all of these wonderful volunteers that they help feed about 60 families a week, which just makes such a difference. And you guys participate in that. We're so thankful for the way that you do that. And as I wander around the church, sometimes I just get bored, so I just go for a wander. I notice this sign. It says this, please take what you can use. Remember, others will be shopping after you. Please come and take for free. Take out of grace. Take because it's there and you need it. But don't just take it for the sake of taking it. Make sure that you remember that there's someone else who's coming along who may have that need and think, process what you're doing with that bread. Think about how it might be shared and how it might resource more people than just you. Somewhere there's this way we get to think about bread that at least asks the question, is some of my bread needed by somebody else? And maybe that matters. This is the wonderful Colorado River that begins in Colorado, as you might guess from the name of the river. And you can raft down it, you can do all of these wonderful things, all these beautiful sights to see. And as it makes its way to, down towards Baja, California, I pronounced it Baja in the first service, and I was told that was wrong. Apparently, my, my Spanish pronunciation, not so good. But the Gulf of Mexico, as it makes its way down there, it hits This incredible site that is the Hoover Dam, built in the 60s, built out of necessity, built out of the need for water in places that don't have water. Built so that farmers could make sure they could grow enough crops. Built so that you and I could have our daily bread. Good, nothing wrong with that, all important. We needed access to that water. But look what happens as this river makes its journey down here through Arizona down to Baja, California. show you my accents working. When it gets there, this is what the river delta looks like. It didn't always look like that. When there was no dam, it teemed with life, it teemed with fish, it teemed with tourists, it had so many different things happening there. It was an ecosystem that was just full of life, and now it isn't. When they asked one uh, fisherman who had lived there in his 80s, he said this, It was a lot deeper then than now. It was a lot deeper then than now. Was the dam created so that crops could be grown so important things could happen? Yes. Has that created a need that wasn't there before for a whole other group of people? Yes. And somewhere there, there is a tension, right? Somewhere there, it's not just as simple as knock down the dam, let the water go. Again, loads of people will go hungry. But somewhere there is a whole system of how water is shared that actually matters. Somewhere when we think about our daily bread, we don't just get to ask, what do I need, God, what can you provide for me? We also get to ask, what does another person need? It isn't just about me, it isn't just about you. Somewhere, the language is about us. It was a lot deeper then than now. It was a lot deeper then than now. We had a lot more before you guys came along. There is tension there for us to wrestle with. Somewhere, it seems like when Jesus says to pray our daily bread, it's not just a petition for provision. Somewhere, the the invite is this. Somewhere the invite is a participation in provision. You get to participate, and I get to participate. To go back to that Moses story, that Exodus story that we began with, this is the next part of the story. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. In this narrative, there are a group of people who in the midst of God's provision keep more than they need. And the next morning when they go back to it, it is no longer good. I'm not saying to you, and I'm not saying to me, you should give away everything you own, you should only have enough for just tomorrow. I'm saying to you, do something harder, wrestle with that tension ask God what that means for you. I'm not saying cancel the 401k. I'm not saying cancel all planning for retirement, but I'm saying wrestle with that tension. This is a passage from this prophetic book Ezekiel. It talks about a city called Sodom, which is somewhat famous for being destroyed by fire and brimstone. And we think we know that story and then look how God unpacks that story through this prophet, he says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom, the city that was destroyed. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Whatever we think may be the root cause of Sodom's destruction, what we're told is this, they were unconcerned. And my plea for you and I is not, I don't wanna tell you what to do, I'm not even telling myself what to do, but I'm pleading with us, oh, don't be unconcerned. Daily bread is far more than just God, give me what I need. It is about provision for everybody, always. Jesus was constantly interested in what people had to eat. Just before feeding 5,000 people, miraculously, he has this challenge for his first followers. When he landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them. And healed their sick as evening approached the disciples came to him and said this is a remote place and it's already getting late send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food send the crowds away so they can deal with their own needs and find their own daily bread they do not need to go away you give them something to eat Jesus, in the midst of his earliest followers, who have said, we don't have enough even for us, says, share it anyway. Share it anyway. And then he does this miraculous provision thing, which kind of like, wow, where did that come from? And yet the, the plea for the disciples is, no, don't give up on sharing just because you feel you might have en- not have enough for tomorrow. Find ways to share with those who need it the most. Give us today our daily bread is not just a prayer, it's a deeply challenging spiritual principle to live by. Give us our daily bread. It's not eschatological in my mind, it's probably physical, but I just wonder if there's another twist as well, because this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus has this incredible way of being able to take something obvious and then at different points in his conversation, just twist it a little bit, so maybe it has a spiritual meaning as well. My question for us is what might he mean in terms of the spiritual sense of give us today our daily bread? When fasting in the desert, Jesus' statement on bread was this, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus talks about bread as something that we can have and we can have our fill of, but if that's all we have, we may find there's a twist. We may find that we find ourselves emptier than we realize. I would suggest that somewhere in the West today, we are, we are wrestling with this dilemma. I wonder if we at times are starving people that are never hungry. I wonder if we're starving people that are never hungry. We're never hungry in the physical sense, but because of what we have, because there is so much, somewhere deep inside us, there is this spiritual aspect that, that we are malnourished and really starving for something more. And Jesus pushed to the crowds listening to him, well, oh, I fed you. But there's more than just that thing. In a whole discourse in John's gospel in chapter six, he makes this incredibly broad statement. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. In actual fact, as the crowds arrive, he, he looks at them and says, I know why you're here. You're here because I fed you. You're here because I gave you food and you didn't have any, and, and that's, that's fine. But, but know that that's not everything that I long to do for you. Know that there's something else that you need that is beyond that. Jesus, it seems, is interested in their physical food, but more than that, perhaps he's interested in their spiritual food. Really, his words for them seem to be something like this, don't find yourselves full of physical food and find yourself starving spiritually. And when asked to unpack what that meant, he said, I am the answer to that. If you have any questions about whether Jesus thought he was the answer to that spiritual malnutrition, he was like, no, no, I am the thing. I am the bread. And this is the moment, this struggle in John chapter six is the moment where it says many of his disciples left him because they said, 'Who who can handle that? You're calling yourself bread. You're calling yourself sustenance. You're saying you are the answer. And he said, yeah, I am. Jesus' discourse on bread is strong. He says that God longs to provide for our needs. But his language is that somewhere God has provided for a much deeper need than that. Perhaps today our struggle is this. We are so obsessed with the physical thing that we miss the spiritual thing. And when we get to those lowest points, the chances are that the physical thing, just having enough to eat, just doesn't cut it and give us what we need anymore. I have an Old Testament professor when I was in seminary, and in the middle of an Old Testament texts class, he just dropped in this deeply personal, emotional story. I think it was in the book of Job, and he began to tell us about the moment where that story became real for him. He said, there was this moment where I lost everything. My wife and I split up, she left, she took the house, she took the kids, and I was left with nothing lost my job because of the depression, just, just had nowhere left to go. And he said, I found myself in the middle of winter, stood by a lake covered in ice. And I had this moment where I was about to throw myself into this lake. and just ended or to do what the people in the desert said, like, it'd be better if we died before. Let's just end it here. And he said, in the midst of that, in the the moment before leaping, that moment just before I jumped, he said, I heard a voice of God. And he said, I'm not saying it was like some kind of internal thing, I'm saying loud, outside, audible. And in that moment, God said to me this He said, If you have nothing else, am I enough for you? If you have nothing else, am I enough? And he said, He wrestled with this, this question Is he enough? And he said, in that moment, he said, I got down on my knees by the side of a lake and I said, if I have nothing else, you are enough. You are enough. Jesus, the bread of life, comes and stands in the midst of us on earth and says, I have come to provide something far more than just bread. In all of your deepest need and lack, in all of your brokenness, in your need for forgiveness, I have come to give you that thing that you most need. He's called for his earliest followers. He's prayed regularly and often, God, give us today our daily bread, but don't miss out on that other application. Jesus came that you may have life and life to the full. Let's pray. God, in the midst of a discourse language on bread, thank you that you cared for the physical needs of those who needed you. Thank you that you spoke to ordinary, everyday people, people concerned about whether The money they would earn today would feed their families tomorrow and you provided and said God cares and knows and provides. Thank you for the way that you challenge us on how we share our bread. May we not be people that eat bread belonging to other people that sit and eat bread while the one next to us has nothing to eat. May we not miss out on the spiritual bread that you talk about, that you came and your death and resurrection meant the possibility of life. If you are here and perhaps you've never been able to believe that Jesus matters, maybe you like some of his teaching, but the idea of him bringing life and being bred to, to survive on, maybe that seems foreign. We're going to close our service by singing and That song is almost an invitation. It's an invitation to attach bread and breath to each other. To talk about how God sustains with each breath that we take in and each breath that we let out. That God sustains and that he is the bread of life, the thing that we need, the thing that your soul needs. And in a time and a place where it's so easy to believe that we survive on what we need physically. Jesus pushed to us, is is that really all you need? God, for my friends, for myself, may you speak to us. Meet us at the point of our need, wherever that is. Amen. If God is working your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.